You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Tuesday, July 14, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. But first, Peter Cooper with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. Many U.S. banks reported earnings today. And while they weren't great, there were some surprises. The key theme is that banks had to set aside a large amount of capital for loan loss reserves. And this really ate into their earnings for the second quarter. Citigroup posted just $1.32 billion in earnings for the quarter, down 73% compared to Q2 2019, as the bank set aside $7.9 billion in loan loss reserves. But some of this was offset by strong trading revenues. Fixed income revenues were up 68% to $5.6 billion, no doubt related to the frenzy of insurance in junk, as well as investment-grade bonds. For bank giant JP Morgan, the picture was much rosier. While Q2 net income did fall to $4.69 billion, down 51% from $9.65 billion a year earlier, it did beat estimates of $3.4 billion. Revenues were up 15% year over year, $33.8 billion. Net interest income down 4%, but non-interest revenue was up 33%. Again, it's the trading revenues that saved the day. And the big loser of the day was Wells Fargo, which lost $2.38 billion for Q2, the first time in over a decade. Financials are currently not looking so hot, and banks are bracing for a big hit in loan defaults over the next few months as businesses continue to suffer and shudder. Businesses who received PPP loans are also facing a bleak future. With the PPP extension going through August 8th, about $150 billion remains in the coffers. Goldman Sachs had recently released a survey and provided this to Axios, and it states that 84% of PPP recipients will run out of their funding by the first week of August. 16% of PPP recipients have said that they are very confident they will be able to maintain payroll without any more government relief or support. Given that several hundred of these recipients are publicly traded companies, perhaps even well-capitalized ones, we can probably expect that these may not be the businesses who are worried about meeting payroll. Goldman said that 77% of loan recipients were able to maintain 75 to 100% of their payroll with that funding. However, according to the National Federation of Independent Business, 22% of PPP recipients anticipate having to lay off at least one employee once the loan is used up. That's about one in five recipients. Part of the reason is largely due to extreme demand slowdown. 63% of small business owners say that less than 75% of their pre-COVID revenue has returned, and 60% report that less than 75% of their patrons have returned as customers. While we know that the lockdown and the beginnings of the recession are directly linked, we know too that the coronavirus surge is dragging on the real U.S. economy, despite all of our best efforts to rev up the engine again. Now, when will the sequel of this spring begin? And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Ed and Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
Thanks, Peter. Welcome back, Ed. Good to see you, Ash. Good to see you, too. I fear that I'm a little bit cynical from yesterday's episode, listening to your case. I was looking at today with jaundiced eyes. Yeah, you know, uh, it's uh, sometimes you just got to get let the, the, the rage out, rage against the machine, whatever you want to call it. Uh, today, I think we're going to be back on the numbers. I know that you like the numbers. You were telling me that you're a numbers guy. We can talk about the numbers because we did have the bank earnings that came out today yeah. that Gabrielle sent us in and that Peter was talking about. So I have some thoughts on that as well. And I think that we're going to break that down a little bit today. Yeah, well, let's start there. Uh, what were your thoughts, Ed? Yeah, you know, I saw something in terms of, uh, I think it was from Miles Udland, who was writing about what people are thinking about where we are in the business cycle. And so it was making me think about uh, bank earnings because banks are, are cyclical stocks. When people talk about value and growth, they're talking about banks as value. And that's very important in terms of where we are in the cycle. So in this uh, uh, tweet that uh, Miles Udlin had, he was he showed the percentage of investors that thought that the economy's early cycle versus the percentage of investors uh, who are thinking that the economy is in recession. And those are moving in opposite directions right now with a very high percentage of people, the highest probably since you know 2013, thinking that the economy is early cycle. So a lot of people are thinking that the recession is over and that we are early cycle uh, potentially for a longer period of time. And that is buoying stocks. Potentially, that's what's behind uh, where stocks are. Yeah. And Miles is a smart guy. I worked with him over at Yahoo Finance. I'm curious, though, Ed, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so my thoughts about that, I think that they go, uh, I think that we are early cycle, to be honest with you, that the recession is over, statistically speaking. That is, is, is that uh, if the NBER was forced to uh, date the cycle in, at February for the, the recession, then I believe that they're going to be forced to date the, the end of the recession in May, maybe June. And that we're we're in a a period where we don't know if we'll have a double dip or not, but th that th that particular cycle is over. So it does make sense to me that the cycle is over. But then secondarily, I'm thinking of it in terms of the way that I spoke to Dan Russo about it last week on the seventh. You know, he talked to me about looking at it from a sectoral perspective, not in terms of uh, the overall market per se. And whether you look at the S&P 500, whether you look at the Dow, whether you look at uh, the, uh, the Russell 2000, there are differences. I, there's a chart, actually, that we have uh, that I think is good, which breaks down the sector or industry group and the percentage of the S&P market capitalization at the end of 2019, the percentage in, at July 10th, which was on Friday, and then the total return. Uh, for 2020 through July the 10th. And what you see there is, is what I would say, growth over value. That is, is, is that what we've seen is a recession uh, indicator. And so the question is, is how is that going to play out? How are those sectors going to play out individually over time? Let me just uh, draw out a few, uh, a few sectors. For instance, on the downside, uh, the ones that are getting hit hard by COVID, 
energy down 39% uh, year to date. Hotels, resorts, and cruise lines down 49%. Airlines down 51%. But then you have industrials down 15%. I look at that as a, a sign of recession. They are a cyclical uh, industry. And then finally, most importantly for me, in terms of how I'm thinking about this going forward and whether or not this is early cycle or not, is financials. Financials are down 22.6% year to date. And if uh, the earnings that we saw today are a harbinger of the future, then supposedly that, you know, all of the negativity are, are, is in the past. And that negative 22.6% is going to go up from here. And that you should expect financials in early cycle to lead. If the, if the financials are not leading to the upside, that tells you uh, that it's either not the beginning of the cycle or there's a double dip coming. Right. You know, we saw the Dow bounce quite a bit, especially at the end of the day, up uh, over 500 points, over 2.13% uh, on the day on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. I I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, about JP Morgan's earnings. Yeah, when I look at the earnings overall, I think that, you know, we looked at Wells Fargo. I think Peter was saying that they were the, the laggard there uh, and they weren't doing as well. But I'm looking actually at loan loss reserves. I think that's the most interesting bit. I've seen uh, anywhere from uh, 22, I haven't seen the exact numbers, to 28 in terms of the loan loss reserves that they have uh, for this quarter. And, and since uh, Q4, of 2019, they've reserved $43 billion. So to me, it's uh, whether or not that's under provisioning. Uh, Chris Whalen, he's gonna, he was doing an interview for us for uh, um, a, a series that's going to come out for um, banking. And I, I would say a big part of that is going to be commercialized uh, or collateralized loan obligations, so CLOs. And the long and short of what he, he saw is, is, is that it's going to be a bigger hit to bank balance sheets this time than in 08. They were very well capitalized, but there, is, there should be some concern as to whether or not this is the beginning of a huge spate of loan loss reserves on bank balance sheets. And I think that the, the jury's out as to whether or not this is really early cycle because of that. So uh, that's what I'm looking at, loan loss reserves more than the bottom line that, uh, that Peter was talking to us about earlier in the show. Yeah. You know, Jamie Dimon, again, talking about the Fortress balance sheet, continuing to increase the reserves. It suggests that the uh, expectation is for, uh, for, for future, for future uh, losses on those loans. And again, all of these banks, the earnings are driven by FIC, fixed income uh, currency and commodities trading, uh, not by commercial and industrial lending. This is being driven by trading. It's being driven uh, by market gyrations. It's not being driven by activities that are fundamentally about growth in the U.S. economy. Right, yeah. And even with uh, the, the huge numbers that some of the banks have put up, like J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, and, and Wells Fargo, they don't have a good trading operation, so they're going to be a laggard, obviously, as a result of that. Look at the KBW Bank uh, ETF uh, and look at where they were in February at the highs, how they got crushed down into March. Uh, you know, they were well over 100, That the KBW uh, Bank ETF. It went down to below 60, and now we're uh, treading water at about 73. So you compare that to any of the other sectors, and, and they've come way back. So that's indicative of the fact that 
there's there the people are still expecting a lot of of carnage in the banking sector and uh you know going back to that that chart that we had up earlier with regard to the different uh, sectors uh uh i think that there's a lot to be said for which of these sectors are going to outperform going forward um and to me it doesn't look like people are expecting financials to to outperform anytime soon they were up on the day but uh, the jury's really out for that. Yeah, you know, uh, final bullet point on JP Morgan. Headline was they beat their earnings. If you look in traditional financial media, bottom line, year over year, 51% decline. Right, right. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's the game that you play, right, is, is that you lower expectations and then you bring it forward. The interesting bit for uh, these, these banks, uh, and not just the banks, actually, for the S&P 500 in general, is that JP Morgan did uh, beat earnings estimates. But there aren't that many companies that are able, that have the visibility necessary to, uh, or say they have the visibility to be able to give their earnings. So this particular spate of earnings that we're about to run into, I think, is the last one where you get the free pass. So July 2020, free pass for most of the S&P 500 uh, companies. But going forward, you know, into August, September, October, we are going to have to see more visibility. They're going to have to give us expectations, and then they're going to have to live up to those expectations. Yeah, heading into Ed Harrison's patented Q3 danger zone. <laughs> exactly. But you know, I did I did add in August as the time frame as well. So I think that you know already, even during these calls in July, uh, you're gonna you're gonna have people on the uh, the earnings calls asking, you know, do you have any update on your earnings for uh, Q3 and Q4, and do you have any update on your earnings for 2021? What are your thoughts about that? Um, one of the things that will give them the free pass is uh, COVID-19. You know, I was looking at some of the other screens that I have here uh, with me. Uh, I have my iPad, and uh, I noticed that uh, that the three states that are the three most populous, I believe, in the country, uh, Florida, California, and Texas, that they're in some sort of uh, re-lockdown. It's not just a rollback, but a, a, a re-lockdown of, of sorts. And that, that's already having some sort of impact on uh, businesses. I also see that uh, Miami-Dade uh, patients, they rose uh, in, in terms of the number. The, uh, the number who are in ventilators has risen. The number of deaths has risen in Florida overall. So really, all of these things are, are painting a very negative picture yeah. for the, the visibility for earnings and also the ability to, to beat going forward for these companies. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. Yeah, you, you know, uh, F Florida actually hit a single-day record uh, on Tuesday. Data released 132 deaths. This is the most deaths in any state in the union uh, in the entire COVID crisis. So that's a sobering number uh, and a bit of a frightening one. You know, let me tell you a little bit about how I'm thinking about this, right? So if you think about what the model is, you have the data that come out around COVID, uh, and, and we know that it's a, a wide variety of different data. You have 
from the uh, from the testing data to the hospitalization data to unfortunately the final terminal endpoint, uh, the death data, which is uh, tragic. And but we have to think about this in terms of data. And then the next start, sort of step in the model is to think about what's happening in terms uh, of the lockdown process. So you have you know you have the data that comes in. And then you have the lockdown, which is either being ramped up or ramped down, depending upon the severity uh, that the health authorities find on a state-by-state -state basis, which makes it tricky to follow. And then finally, you have the economic impact that is caused by that. And then you could say that the last piece in that puzzle is how U.S. equity markets and capital markets in general price the risk uh, of what they foresee as the last step in that, which is the ultimate economic impact. What is the ultimate economic impact of these restrictions, uh, and and how does it affect the economy, and how do we price that risk? So when you think about it in that sense, this is a pretty complicated model with a lot of moving parts. And when you look at those inputs, which are way back, uh, sort of all the way to the left in terms of the of the timeline. There's a considerable lag, but the data coming out are sobering. So Florida, as you mentioned, uh, had a very, very difficult day in terms of deaths, in terms of rising cases. California also uh, rolling back their uh, rolling back their release of the lockdown. So now in California, implementing new restrictions on in-person gatherings, new restrictions uh, on restaurants, new restrictions on bars, all of this uh, about indoor gatherings of uh, generally more than five to 10 people. This is not a good sign for the economy. No, it's not. And, you know, interestingly enough, I was just, as you were saying that, I was looking, uh, the update is that uh, California, Florida, and Texas recorded at least 30,000 new cases 18% of the global total. So those three states alone are making up 18% of the total of new cases. And, you know, those new cases with a lag are going to lead to hospitalizations at a lower rate, obviously, because it's younger people. We, you know, we're better able to deal with this and uh, to deaths. And so, you know, the uptick in deaths that we see in Florida and we also have seen in places like Arizona are going right. to be certainly we already see them to a certain degree in Texas. They're going to be in other places as well uh, across the south and across the west. So I think that ultimately it's going to have a chill on consumer behavior. It, it is leading to these uh, renewed lockdowns in certain places, and therefore it's going to cause some companies to look for a free pass, not just for Q2, but also for Q3 and Q4. I don't think that investors are going to give it to them. I think that when Q3 comes around, that is September, October timeframe, and it's ready for the next round of earnings, investors are going to say, you know, you've got to give us some uh, some visibility. We're not going to continue to support your shares unless we know uh, where this is headed. Yeah. You know, I was doing the back of the envelope head math on those numbers, and as you said them, and that would be overweight uh, for the U.S. population on a population-adjusted basis for those states you named. Right, yeah. So, I mean, the U.S. is by far uh, you know, leading the pack right now in terms of uh, these these numbers. 18% is a, a huge uh, percentage for three states alone. So we know that uh, we have epidemic proportions in terms of how things are uh, in the U.S. right now. You know, Ed, I want to call back to the chart that we showed earlier, which showed the S&P 500 by sector. So one of the things that struck me about this uh, was the restaurant industry represents only 1.2% of the S&P 500. There are 1 million plus restaurants in the United States. 
restaurant industry projected sales in 2020 are about $900 billion. U.S. GDP is $20 trillion. So that's a little less than 1 20th of U.S. GDP. So restaurant stocks represent 1.2% of the S&P 500, but 4.5% of GDP. So it's underrepresented by roughly 3.3 times. That's a pretty striking number. And it shows, to some extent, the distortions that we see when we think about the S&P 500 or U.S. equity market indices as a representation of the economy. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think that uh, that was the article from which that particular chart came, talked about that, that stocks are not a representation of the economy, that certain sectors are overrepresented and other sectors are underrepresented. Information technology, 27.6% of the market capitalization in July, 23% in December. And that's definitely much higher than it is for the overall economy. So the numbers that we see in terms of things going up aren't always the same. And this is why, for instance, the NASDAQ leads the S&P, which leads the Dow, which leads the Russell 2000 or any small cap index that you're taking a look at. And as we're talking about this, going back to what I was talking about yesterday and inequality and anger, angrynomics, as uh, Mark Blythe and Eric Lonergan were talking about it, uh, one of my, the top tweet I have on my uh, site uh, you know, on my Twitter feed here is uh, this article from The New York Times uh, that says, I can't keep doing this. Small business owners are giving up. Why are they giving up? In particular, in the United States, because of the second lockdown. That yeah. is, is, is that, you know, they were able to make it through the first lockdown. Now they're not going to be able to make it through the second lockdown. They're giving up. And then, you know, that might, uh, you know, have a negative uh, bent for the economy, it might cause, as I said, the W, the second leg on the W, even yeah. though, statistically speaking, we we're already out of recession, potentially, according to the NBER. But will that show up in, in shares? Will uh, the fact that small businesses are going out of business, because they're underrepresented, as you said, in certain sectors like uh, uh, restaurants? I think yeah. the article also mentioned that retailing was underrepresented as well. Yes. So, you know, I think that what we're seeing, therefore, is a, a, a dichotomy between the, the share economy and the real economy. Well, that's exactly right. And if you go through and you do some of the analysis on jobs, it's even more striking. So there are 15.6 million restaurant industry employees in the United States out of a total population of 328 million, uh, 328 million people in the U.S. So that's roughly one in 20 Americans. But the U.S. civilian labor force is only 158 million people. So it's almost exactly one in 10 workers in the United States work in the restaurant industry. And the restaurant industry has been absolutely pummeled by this crisis. And when you compare it, as you did, uh, to, the, to the tech industry, it's pretty striking, right? If you think about the number of people. So I did some back-of-the-envelope math. Apple Computers has 137,000 employees with a market cap of 1.67 trillion U.S. dollars. So that's $12.1 million per employee in market cap. I actually had to check my math. I was like, yeah, it's 10 to the 12. It's hard to actually believe that it's that high. Now, you could say that it's trading at a, at a very rich EPS, and that's true. It's trading at an EPS of about 30 on a trailing 12-month basis. But that's still $400,000 in earnings per employee per year. So Apple is printing $100,000 in net income per employee per quarter. If you think about what your average neighborhood pizzeria is making, 
uh, per employee. It's not a hundred thousand bucks a quarter. No, it's not. And uh, and by the way, when you said EPS, you were talking about PE ratios, price to earnings, as opposed to EPS. Yeah. And, and let me just say that you know, even at Apple, the question becomes, how is that allocated? You know, because obviously. Apple employees are not getting equal share in terms of what uh, the productivity or the, the the money that they're making for their company. Um, they're getting less. Uh, so even at Apple, you have that level of, of inequality between average ordinary workers and the top brass. Those are, and you know many of the top brass are people who get uh, shares in terms of uh, options or even share grants. Uh, so. There, there are different layers of, of inequality, and this is exacerbated by the, the crisis that we're living through right now. And so yeah. I think that, without a doubt, the whole concept that people are angry, not because uh, other people are getting more than uh, they're getting, but because they don't deserve more, that they're getting something that they do not deserve, because the system is rigged against ordinary people. That's the problem. And if I say that, you know, with conviction, 100 percent conviction, that that's the system that we're living with. And that's what needs to change. That's what's broken right now. And, you know, ultimately, distributional problems in an economy are not just moral issues. Ultimately, they're economic issues, because the reality is the marginal propensity to spend versus the marginal propensity to save uh, for people who have large amounts of money is dramatically skewed from what workers would do. And eventually, and this is a, a massive challenge, you have fewer and fewer people winding up with more and more wealth. And what do they do with marginal uh, income? They invest it. They don't spend it. And that's terrible for consumption, which is roughly two-thirds of U.S. GDP. Well, you know, uh, some people would say that it's better because productivity growth increases and those gains will go to everyone within society if you invest, as long as you invest in the right places, a uh, higher quality investment where, uh, you know, there are productivity gains. But let me just say, not to dump on Trump, but, you know, he said he was a man of the people. I'm going to do something for you. What does he go and do? The first thing he goes and does is he gives tax cuts to the rich and to corporations. And, and increases the inequality. Supposedly, uh, what I, that's going to increase uh, productivity. Uh, that's exactly what I just said. The reason that you give those cuts is because supposedly it's going to be used to invest. But what happened? Instead, you got share buybacks. People, uh, they loaded up on debt and corporations. And then these exact same corporations are the ones who are getting all the bailout money uh, while mom and pop stores are going bust. So that's the system that we've just bought into. That's yeah. why people are upset. It doesn't work. Something has to change. What is your view about what needs to change in order to stimulate the economy to and to make the system more just and equal? I think what has to change is is, is that you know from an economic perspective, from a political perspective, ordinary people have to have more power to allow them to share in the productivity growth in the wealth that they are creating, they individually are creating. And there are many different mechanisms in which and in, in ways that you could do that. Um, I thought it was interesting uh, the way that Blythe and Lonergan were talking about it. And uh, I don't necessarily buy into what they were saying in terms of the mechanisms that they were talking about. But I think that that's, that's the, the, the ilk of uh, of the sort of thing that you're looking to do. You're looking to make sure, you're looking to create mechanisms by which 
average ordinary people can share without actually taking money away from other people, without you know redistributing wealth, redistributing income. Yeah. So fundamentally, you think it's a fiscal policy question? Well, I don't know if it's a fiscal policy question or not. I, I think that fundamentally, it's a political power question. It's really about political power in a country like the United States in particular, where money is supposed to be freedom. You know, uh, what, what was the classic uh, Supreme Court vote that allowed uh, people to spend unlimited funds, Citizens United? I mean, that's that's where the problem lies. You know, if you have maximum amounts of money that you can spend, then you can tilt the playing field in the direction of things that you want. That's the system that we're living in, and that's not a system that works for ordinary people. That's my view. Uh, how about yourself, Ash? You know, I know that you are you feel very comfortable uh, asking the questions. I'm going to turn the spotlight <laughs> on you now. Uh, what do you think about that? Citizens United. I'll go out on a limb and say that I think Citizens United uh, allowed rich people to spend more and therefore to get what they wanted more, and that increases inequality. Yeah, Citizens United famously classified spending as speech, the idea being that you couldn't abridge it because it was a form of speech and you wouldn't restrict it. Look, I, I'm not an attorney. I'm not well-versed on the legal issues around it. But I would say that income inequality is a, is a major challenge. Um, that's something that, from an economic perspective, is clearly uh, damaging uh, and and fundamentally uh, and fundamentally challenging uh, at a human level as well, and deeply unfair, I think. And again, we talked a little bit about yesterday rising education prices uh, and the rising cost of healthcare. These are things that uh, that are impacting working families, middle class families, upper middle class families, and they make it much harder. Uh, to make ends meet, and also to advance. I think that those are challenges that absolutely need to be solved. In terms of, of Citizens United, I guess I, I try not to think about politics. I enjoy economics more. There are numbers around it. You can get to a point where something is can be demonstrably correct or incorrect. So I think more about the prices of things like health care uh, and education and the structure. It all starts with, the, with, the, with the, uh, the politics at the end of the day. If you don't control the politics, and you're not there where the sausage gets made, you're not going to get what you want. That's why people pay lobbyists in order to get them to get the deals for them that they deserve to get, they think. And let me just say also, you know, if if the answer is in a generation, we'll get back to where we need to be. That doesn't help me. That doesn't help my brother. It doesn't help my my cousin now. You know, people, they want to have uh, uh, to share in the future, tomorrow, uh, you know, next year, as soon as possible. So that's where the uh, you know much more radical ideas come into play. This is why you know uh, people who are much more radical in their thinking are the ones who are going to start to get uh, a voice because they're offering a, a solution right now, and that solution is to tear down the existing structure in its entirety. Don't uh, you know pussyfoot around. Don't try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again the way that Tim Geithner and, and the rest of them did. Uh, tear the whole thing down. So that that's where we're headed, uh, unless unless things change pretty soon on the political level, not the economic level. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a it's a it's a frightening thought because there's much that's worth preserving, and that sort of that's my reaction. Is there's a great deal that's worth preserving here, and I find the the extremism on the left and on the right to be a deeply troubling aspect of American politics in 2020. And of course, you know these are problems that have been building. Uh, for decades, if not generations, but it feels like it's coming to a head right now because of the points that you mentioned, uh, the radical restructuring uh, that took place in 2008, 2009, and subsequently with continued expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. And then you have this massive crisis on top of it, which needs uh, stimulus, uh, fiscal and monetary to keep the economy from falling off the cliff. And when you put all of those things together and you lock people in their houses because they can't go out and hang out at a bar and have a beer and enjoy their lives the way they did four or five months ago. It's a potentially dangerous situation. Uh, and it's uh, potentially um, potentially something that looks like it has the real risk to destabilize uh, a way of life that we've all come to rely on. And, and let me just say that uh, I was talking to my daughter probably a good uh, hour before this conversation and uh, she goes to a university in Germany. They're doing online classes there. And, um, you know, uh, but at the same time, she was telling me what life is like in Germany, people working in a normal way, people going to uh, uh, using public transportation to get to work, et cetera. They're almost back to normal, if you will, in, in certain ways. And so the question is, is, you know, given the fact that in Germany or in the Netherlands, in the UK, Italy, places like that, the same level of anxiety about inequality has started to percolate and it's created populism. That, that situation that they're dealing with, where they can go out uh, in a way that they, we cannot do, as you were saying, that's going to alleviate some of the political pressure uh, for radical change in those places. In America, I think that you know, our response to the crisis which is the re-lockdown in places like Texas, California, Florida, that's right. going to radicalize the electorate in a way that's unpredictable. And we're going to find out what it means going forward. Disconcerting point to end on it. Yes. Uh, you know, but I think that we're talking about social science when we talk about economics uh, and finance. It's about how people react. And there's a certain uncertainty uh, in, in that, uh, no pun intended. And uh, that's what we're living right now. And it's going to have its impact on elections and also on policy. Yes. Very well said. Good to talk to you, Ash. Thanks for joining. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.